Good evening. You're listening to WNUR 89.3 FM HD1, Evanston, Chicago. I'm Georgia Kerrigan, and this is WNUR News at 6. Tonight, the accessibility and equity of the Chicago L train, where to channel your post-Valentine's Day blues, how college students stay true to cultural cuisines, and, of course, the B-list for the latest on pop culture. Those stories and more coming up from Northwestern University. This is WNUR News at 6. WNUR News' new podcast, All About the Chicago L, is back with its second episode tonight. Here's Allison Rauch with more. question that Chicago's elevated rail system keeps the city and suburbs moving. But just who exactly is moving? Are they getting where they need to go on time? Who is choosing to ride the L and who doesn't have the choice? Who is being served by the current system and who isn't? And how do we make these systems better for everyone? And can we? I'm Allison Rauch and this is Elevating, a new podcast series from WNR News. Episode 2, Who is the L4? It's undeniable that in a metropolitan city, public transportation is and should be accessible to everyone. And in some ways, Chicago's system is. This is sort of the epitome of public transportation. In a city with, in a, in a country with such huge gaps between the rich and the poor, This is a relatively affordable way to get around. That's Patrick Reardon, author of a book about the Loop. In it, Reardon argues that the Loop is the heart of Chicago, allowing people from all over the city to circulate downtown. There's a mix of the classes on the L's. So if you're riding south on on the red line, you know, you've got people that are lawyers and, uh, and doctors and homeless people. You know, if you're riding from the west, you're getting people from Oak Park who are homeowners getting on with people who are laborers. So it's it's not perfect, you know, but it is it is a way in which the races are able to, to experience together. The classes, the economic classes can experience it together. And it makes it possible for people to get around to jobs. Therefore, the L seems fairly egalitarian, at least at face level. However, just because something is technically accessible to everyone doesn't mean it caters equally to all populations. Chicago continues to be a highly segregated city with large numbers of black Chicagoans historically living on the south side of the city. Why is it that the far south side of Chicago is the only part of the city that does not have rail service? That's Brian Steele, vice president of communications for the CTA. The CTA is rolling out a red line extension project designed to address long-standing inequalities in rail service access on the far south side. Right now, the red line only goes down to 95th Street. That's around 30 blocks from the city limits. 
It's not exaggeration to say that the Red Line extension will be the most transformational transit project in a half century in the city of Chicago. The Red Line extension calls for a 5.6 mile extension from the current southern end of the Red Line, which is 95th Street, all the way down to 130th Street, and there will be four stations constructed as part of that. This project will address a 50 plus year gap, actually longer than that, gap in rail transit service to the far south side of Chicago, the south suburbs. Those areas have been cut off from the benefits of rail public transit since the original red line opened in 1969. Uh, there have been promises made and initial planning done over the decades, nothing ever moved forward. The investment that we're making in the stations, we believe will foster development down there, commercial, residential, educational. It's a good sign that the CTA is now willing to invest in providing rail access to traditionally underserved populations. But as always, the bottom line will be funding. It is not an inexpensive project. The current sure. price tag is $3.6 billion, uh, which sounds like a lot of money because it is a lot of money. But the $3.6 million, certainly it's a cost. We also view it as an investment, an investment in communities, an investment in people, an investment in fostering opportunity, and an investment in addressing a long-standing inequity. We have secured about $2 billion of the project cost through various funding streams, uh, local, state, uh, and federal. Later this year, the federal government is anticipated to provide us essentially the balance of this project, about a billion dollars. That will enable us to actually start moving forward with the process on this project. The federal government has signaled that this is the type of project that they want to support. Uh, it falls right in line with the priorities of the uh, current presidential administration, which has talked about uh, equity projects that will be transformational for communities and promote opportunity. We are very close to crossing the finish line for the Red Line extension and uh, hope that we will be able to make uh, a very positive announcement at the end of this year. Federal funding in particular is an uncomfortable aspect of the Red Line extension. Without it, the project likely will be impossible. And though, as Steele said, federal funding is anticipated, it's not guaranteed, especially since the current presidential administration might be different come November. The Red Line extension is, is our most ambitious effort to solve it. Unfortunately, it's just enormously expensive. That's Joseph Schwederman, professor of transportation at DePaul University. He also serves as director of DePaul's Chaddock Institute for Metropolitan Development. Just to say right bluntly, we have to improve mobility in the far south side. It's just that what we have today is not acceptable. I think the Red Line extension is a really important project, but it's, it's critical we don't let the cost spin out of control because you could build this and find that it doesn't meet its ridership goals, which would be a crying shame to make people wait. I'm just editorializing now. You know, wait eight years until it's open. It's a long time before you open this. There could be delays in construction. There could be new forms of transportation that emerge. Like, you know, a lot of people are using shared Uber trips to get hard to reach locations and car ownership's growing up. So there's a lot of risk in the red line extension as I'm saying. Schwederman hits at an important point. To improve transportation accessibility in the far south side of Chicago, 
it will likely take more than just four more red line stops. It's going to take a multi-pronged approach to help disadvantaged populations. There's no one solution. For example, many are working in warehouses on the in the south suburbs now. You know, Amazon's open up all these warehouses and people coming from poor neighborhoods, marginalized neighborhoods, and they have to get there. And that's really tough on transit the way it's set up today. So like Pace Suburban Bus, if you Google that, they have different sharing programs where you can take Metro or Pace and then a little van will pick you up and take you to the warehouse. And it's part of their new strategy to get people to these big warehouses. That's got to be part of the mix. We also know that people who have shifts that get out at, say, midnight may not feel comfortable being on the L. And we just have to be realistic about whether a woman traveling alone at one in the morning will be comfortable taking the L. So we may need creative options for those populations, too. Joseph Schofer, emeritus professor of civil and environmental engineering at Northwestern University, also discussed these other potential approaches. It's huge. That's a primary that's the real argument for the red line extension. I mean, from a from a transit transportation service point of view, if you took the same amount of money and you allocated it to some other kind of service, a bus, a really good bus service, that very dense coverage and frequent service, you probably you could get more and better transportation. But there's an the equity issue is we're the the low income minority population in in the city, and we're the only part that doesn't really doesn't have rail ser service. So you really equity is the is is the main reason. And it's very it's a, it's very expensive and and the the sad part is if you look at the population density maps down there what you'll see is there's a huge amount of open land. So does it make sense to 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 provide that kind of service on, to open land? You know and the counter argument is well maybe if they have better transit service that land will be developed and people will have better better living circumstances. What you'd hope and I'm not really deeply familiar with the city policy, is that the policy is not just to build the red line extension, but it's to build the community, red line extension being a part of it. Aside from making service more accessible to traditionally underserved communities, there's the issue of improving quality of service for all. Schofer noted the benefits of reliable transportation in communities. Transit plays, transportation in general, plays a huge economic and social role in, in society, if you do really well with transportation, if you give people really good service, you're going to see the results in terms of employment, in terms of education. Historically, or historically the last 30, 40 years, we've looked at public transit market in, in two clumps. There's the captive riders who don't have a choice. So I don't have a car or I can't drive, I'm too young, I'm too old, um, and, and so I, I ride mass transit. And there's the choice riders. And we always talk about the choice riders in, in, in the policy process because on environmental grounds, you know, so if I can get you out of your car and onto the train, it's better the, for the environment. But but you're not a captive rider. So I can only get you onto the train if I give you better service. So if I give you some advantage, I don't have to do that for the captive riders. And so there is an unpleasant tendency to give the captive riders sort of the minimum reasonable service as opposed to a better quality service that you might want to give to a choice rider. So there's a kind of, you know, there's an equity issue. There's an uh, unpleasant kind of racial income-driven process that, that underlies some of this. During the COVID-19 pandemic, it was largely these captive riders who remained on the L. 
Now that ridership numbers are creeping back up, there's disgruntlement about wait times, lack of trains, safety, cleanliness, you name it. Schwederman broadly outlined the current situation. The CTA knows that the situation we have today is not tenable, that we have to be mindful of the problems of the homeless and terrible housing shortage we have, while also allowing essential workers to feel uh, they can have a, a pleasant, predictable riding experience. We, we have to reconcile how we're going to do that. And that's a really, really hard problem. People that rely on the L deserve a higher quality riding experience. And it's, it's, it's really a shame that a lot of people are being scared away by transit right now. I think it's getting better. You know, the more people are on the trains, the better. CTA, if it's crowded, you feel like you got a support system around you, more eyes on the, in the car. And we're seeing uh, traffic gradually build up. And so that's been a good thing. Next episode, we'll talk more about these specific problems, as well as some problems on the operational side. Do we try to build back up to pre-pandemic and not cause anybody to face service reductions, or do we rethink the system? Why can't we have high-speed rail in the United States? And the answer is you're not willing to pay for it. We will not compromise safety for the sake of expediency as it relates to hiring. Thanks for listening to Elevating. For WNUR News, I'm Allison Rauch. WNUR's annual fundraiser, Phonathon, is happening right now. Phonathon ensures that our station can continue to be a voice and guiding light for underrepresented tastes and to be a place where generations of Northwestern students can form friendships lasting a lifetime. Donations help us stay ad-free, host music events, maintain our equipment, and so much more. We greatly appreciate whatever you can give via our Catalyzer page. Thank you so much for listening. Valentine's Day may have come and gone, but for many, the melancholy lingers on. So put your records on and listen to a couple of these go-to Sad Girl Hours songs from Northwestern students. Jesse Chen has the story. It's the week after Valentine's Day, which means that cuffing season is officially over. Or if you're like me and spent Valentine's Day alone, maybe you're ruminating over your ex and romanticizing what could have been. Maybe you're lounging around in disappointment at that one person who never asked you out, even though there obviously was something there. Maybe you're listening to some sad girl hours playlist that your eerily accurate Spotify algorithm curated for you. Cute Billie Eilish. Sad girl hours is a colloquial term that describes a period of time, usually during the night or late evening, when people, typically young women, feel sad, lonely, or emotionally vulnerable. The sad girl hours playlist has been around for a while now, so I asked a couple of Northwestern students what their favorite sad girl hours songs are. Class of 2013, but the audio tree live version by Mitski. That's Gary Leo, School of Com Junior, who personally relates a lot to Mitski's lyrics. And then the second one is All I Need Is To Feel Like Someone Could Love Me By Take Care. But honestly, 
all of the music by Taker. Yeah. Like, the music itself is just very, like, raw in bed, like, losing all your brain cells. Bean and Junior, Lucy Zhang, is a fan of having SZA's music on her Sad Girl Hours playlist. Um, Blind. Her song reveals a lot of her, like, vulnerabilities. A sentiment that was second by School of Calm sophomore, Sattery Bennett. I'm gonna say Nobody Gets Me by SZA. Oof, good song. I'd say also, like, this song by Slow Dive. I don't know if you know, but Slow Mo. It's like a very slow, like, very nice song to listen to. Although the Sad Girl Hours playlist saw a rise in popularity during the pandemic, overly personal songs about spilling one's negative emotions have been a rather recent development. In the acoustic era, some of the earliest popular songs tended to be kind of funny novelty songs or songs associated with the vaudeville stage. That's Jacob Smith, the director of Northwestern's MA in Sound and Industry program and RTVF professor. Here, he's referring to the kind of mainstream recorded music during the 1890s up until the mid-1920s. So both in terms of the kind of singing, very presentational, kind of full voice, and then the kinds of topics, oftentimes kind of funny novelty themes. I think one place where that starts to change is when we talked about the radio crooners. Professor Smith suggests that before the sad girl, there was the sad boy, or technically, the gentle, vulnerable radio crooner who would softly sing into your ear. So crooners developed in the 30s in association with radios and microphones, a much more intimate style of singing that might feel more emotional, more direct, more like a singer is talking right to you. So I think that's one moment where popular song starts to become kind of more intimate. It's interesting to think about how that crooner moment might be updated in a digital moment, where if the crooner you know, gets very close to you, leaning into a microphone, um, my sense is that you know, singers like Billie Eilish very, intimate, quiet, this almost ASMR kind of quiet, whispery, intimate delivery. Professor Smith also notes that a new kind of authenticity was brought to the music scene when singers started writing more of their own songs. You start to get a new kind of expectation that popular singers would also be writing their own songs. So it's, it's an even more kind of like confessional, direct relationship. Um, and I think that really becomes kind of the norm, especially in rock and popular music in the 60s and 70s. Singer-songwriters who are singing, writing their own material and singing often very confessional, intimate kinds of things. And fans being very aware of their personal lives and how their lives might be embodied in songs that they're singing. This level of intimacy and access to artists' personal life also reflects our collective fascination with the backstage as audience members. The sociologist Irving Goffman would talk about front stage and backstage. You know, in our lives, we tend to have like a front stage presentation and then a backstage when we don't think people are watching. But we're, we tend to be fascinated by the backstage, especially if it's an artist that we love. When they're on in the concert, that's one thing. But the authentic, real performer maybe is available in some other backstage way. And so that's something that I think people tend to be fascinated with and that media 
can sell to people, you know what I mean? We, we'll sell access to you, or I'm an artist that will give you that kind of access um, that's appealing to people. Professor Smith also talked about how the changes in societal standards, particularly towards women in the recording industry, have allowed for the creation of this loose genre of music. The history of the recording industry has tended to be very male-dominated. So, I mean, I think one thing, one way of understanding Billie Eilish is that there's long been an appreciation of kind of young women as consumers of recorded music. I mean, that, as we've seen, that goes back to the crooner days. But I think there's been more access to, say, young women as performers and creators and songwriters in the digital era. I mean, that's that the, you know, an ease of access broke down some barriers. More artists and more young women as artists being able to speak to an audience of young women listeners. So maybe that's one thing that's been new in the past 15, 20 years. And being able to speak to audiences through music can be a very powerful thing. I mean, the human voice is such a powerful vehicle for emotion, and music is such a powerful vehicle for emotion. So I think when you put those things together, when you have a certain kind of media that give you access to music and vocal styles that are really personal, really emotional, and then you're experiencing them in your earbuds very close, very personal, in your head, you know, um, there's a lot of potential there for a powerful emotional communication to happen. With lockdown, it's been a hard four or five years, and so I think people seek out outlets for those kinds of difficult emotions, and I think music has often been very good at that. At the end of the day, it's okay to be sad, to listen to sad music and to drown yourself in your feelings. Even Professor Smith feels sad sometimes. So here's a recommendation from him. Feel free to add it to your own playlists. There's a Roxy Music song called uh, Just Another High. The lead singer Brian Ferry fell in love with this um, model named Jerry Hall and wrote many love songs about this person. And then she dumped him for Mick Jagger. <laughs> and he wrote his big breakup song is just another high. For WNUR News, I'm Jesse Chen. Maybe you're thinking of me Well, I don't know Now do I College is full of struggles. Two of the biggest ones are feeding yourself and staying connected to your culture back home. Yumi Talud and Mika Ellison have the story of how some students solved both at once. Picture this. You've just gotten back home from a long day of being a college student. Or maybe you're 12 years old and your parents let you stay home by yourself for the first time. Either way, you're at home. You have zero culinary skills. And you are very hungry. What's one of the only things you can think to make? I guess I was blessed to grow up in a household where I, I didn't really have to eat a struggle meal, like out of like raw necessity. Um, I didn't really know what one is until like I was older. I would say that there's like, I guess two definitions for one. I think the main one is that like a struggle meal is like something that you'd probably eat like back to back when there's like no food in the house or there isn't like enough money for that food. 
Now, I couldn't say that was like necessarily my situation. For me, a struggle meal is likely something that I put together when there is food in the house, but it's like I'm not necessarily rocking with it. And there aren't many other options for me to like one, order out or two, make something on my own. Um, so a struggle meal is cost effective, timely, um, emphasis on time. It's quick and easy to make. A comfort meal or a struggle meal is what you make at the end of a long week, when ingredients are running low or when you don't have the energy to make anything else. For college students, the struggle meal is a familiar one. Classic college struggle meals include cup ramen and peanut butter sandwiches, or occasionally just bread. But often, in times of need, like School of Calm Junior Maria Katsogodakis, we turn to what's most familiar to us. And for me, that would be um, migas. Um, migas or quesadilla, honestly, um, which is something that my mom used to make us on like special days on the weekend when we had time for actual breakfast or whatever. Katsogodakis says migas isn't exactly a struggle meal, but something she makes when she misses home or feels like something special. You can make them as simple or as complex as possible. At their very core, they're um, corn tortillas um, cut up in oil in a pan um, until they're like crispy. Basically, you're making your own tortilla chips, and then you add an egg, and that's its core. I also add cheese and chorizo, which makes it like that much better. For school of senior Deja Guillermo, the struggle meal is less of a struggle and more of a way to remember her roots. I'm Dominican and Puerto Rican. Um, second gen, technically, my parents were born and raised in New York, but my grandparents were all born in DR and or Puerto Rico. Um, a lot of our meals, like struggle meals, really are like staple meals in our country. So it's not even like a struggle meal there, that's just considered normal food. Um, one of the big ones, we love plantains. So we do, my favorite is tostones, which is fried plantains. So we love fried food. Um, so that's super easy. It's literally oil, salt, and plantains. We also do mangu, which is like basically mashed potatoes, but instead of potatoes, we use plantains. So lots of butter, lots of milk, lots of mixing, really, really yummy. I always remember the first time I learned to make tostones. They always say like when you are afraid of the hot oil, it's going to burn you. But when you t like show them who's boss, it's not going to burn you. So when I was first learning, I'd wear like literally super long sleeves. I'd like cover myself up to my neck because I was so terrified of burning myself. And my grandma was like, that's nothing. And mind you, she goes in and she'll like flip it with her hands. Like I think she has calluses just formed on her hands from how many times. So for her, it doesn't bother her. I swear she has no nerves in her fingers, but like she would show me how to like flip them. I still use a fork. I'm still a baby. But I think, yeah, it, it's definitely something that's like triggered every single time that I that I make food. I'm like, oh my God, this was taught to me. Like, obviously I could look it up, but it's never going to be the same. Finding places to eat your favorite meals in Evanston is hard. Even just buying the ingredients isn't always feasible. But to Guillermo, that means an untapped market. The closest Dominican restaurant I think is in Chicago and it's like a 40 minute drive from here. And I owe my mom, it's like this tiny little like family owned restaurant, like nobody, you could drive past it and not even know that it's there. Um, so it definitely like those days I'm just like fiending, I'm fiending. And my friends and I actually joked because now I love to cook and now it's like my favorite thing to do, especially Dominican dishes. And they're like, why don't you, you know, there's an open market there. People don't know about Dominican food. And so my thing now is like I make flan when I have time. I've been in rehearsal. That's my favorite thing ever. So I haven't made it in a long time, but like last year, every weekend I was, I was pumping out more flan from my, from my um, kitchen. Really, really love it. know what it's called in Vietnamese, but like in English, 
or like barely even Vietnamese, where it's literally like a egg and ground beef patty, and it's like the go-to meal if I'm like running, going to school and need something to cook really quickly. Like you toss it to the pan and you can cook it in like under ten minutes, and that serving portion can probably last like two or three meals. That was Nick Lam. He's a sophomore in school of comms who's pretty serious about his Vietnamese food. Clearly, our struggle meals have played a huge part in our relationships with our cultures. But how about when the meal influences the culture? I guess one of the things that I think of is like the historical context of this, or like in ter- like the cultural context of this, in terms of like, I think in America we're really used to eating breakfast, lunch, and dinner in the home, and that's like, or like it's breakfast and lunch at home and then dinner out at a restaurant. Um, in Vietnam, it's flipped on its head, where actually breakfast and lunch are typically eaten outside the house, and so dinner is eaten at home. And so this dish is weird in that way, because for all intents and purposes, it seems like it should be a breakfast or lunch dish. But given the nature that this is not something that's cooked at restaurants and it's only cooked at home, it is actually a dinner dish. So it's served in family-style meals. So it has a, like, a pretty interesting dynamic in the sense that like, I think that diaspora has changed its context and when it's eaten, just because of how things work. But like, yeah, if you go to Vietnam, you would not see this in a restaurant. You would not see this, because everybody in, in Vietnam you'll see if you ever go there is like, breakfast and lunch, people are out eating on the streets. Like they like, it's just like little tables with those like little plastic stools and people go sit on the stools or like even on like trash, like or, like milk crates and trash buckets. But yeah, this is not a restaurant food because it's like you just make it at home. And so it's actually a dinner meal, which is really strange to think about like an egg pancake essentially being a dinner meat dish. But I think that's like the kind of meat part of it. College can be exhausting, and in so many ways. Students have to learn not only how to cook and feed themselves, but also how to navigate a community that might be completely different from their own. For students that are struggling with being away from the cultures and comforts that they grew up with, Guillermo has some advice. I think, and this is kind of goes without saying, food is home, and I think people don't acknowledge that enough. Um, and I think I would be remiss to without saying, to say, whatever the phrase is, that I think sharing food, even with people who don't know, know nothing about it, is a form of love and form of getting to know people. I think every time I cook for other people, I they learn about me and I learn about them. So I think cook for your friends as much as possible and share as many dishes. I love potlucks. I think everyone should, should do more potlucks with friends. Yeah. For WNUR News, I'm Mimi Toulouse. And I'm Mika Ellison. It's a new week, which means that it's time for the B-List. This week, Ella Barnes talks about the People's Choice Award, the BAFTAs, and the NBA All-Star Weekend. Welcome to the B-List, your weekly roundup of celebrity mess and pop culture. This week, the People's Choice Awards, the BAFTAs, and the NBA All-Star Weekend. Stick with me. First up, 
The 2024 People's Choice Awards, hosted by Simu Liu, aired live on Sunday, February 18th on NBC. There are a lot of award shows, but the People's Choice Awards is one of the few where the fans get to vote and choose the winners. Unsurprisingly, summer blockbuster Barbie was up for several awards and won most of them, including Movie of the Year, Comedy Movie of the Year, and Ryan Gosling for Male Movie Star of the Year, Marco Robbie for Female Movie Star, and America Ferreira for Movie Performance of the Year. When it came to TV, Hulu dramedy The Bear had five nominations, winning one, Jeremy Allen White for Comedy TV Star of the Year. Fan favorite The Last of Us picked up two awards for Pedro Pascal for Male TV Star of the Year and for Drama Show of the Year. The ceremony also paid tribute to two icons, Adam Sandler and Lenny Kravitz. Sandler was honored with the People's Icon Award and Kravitz was presented with the Music Icon Award. Next, the 77th Annual British Academy of Film and Television Arts confirmed what the pundits already know. Oppenheimer is the film to beat at the Oscars. Christopher Nolan's film scored Best Film and Director of the Ceremony. Several frontrunner Oscar contenders also won big at the BAFTAs, including Emma Stone for Poor Things, Killian Murphy for Oppenheimer, Devin Joy Randolph for The Holdovers, and Robert Downey Jr. for Oppenheimer. And they're all likely to repeat this at the Oscars, as the group share significant crossover membership. Lastly, the NBA All-Star Weekend occurred this past weekend, from February 16th to 18th. The Eastern Conference defeated the Western Conference 211 to 186, with the winners putting up the most points in the game's 73-year history. The previous mark, 196 by the West in 2016. It was a flurry of records. The total points of 397 smashed the record of 374 set in 2017, while the East made 42 three-pointers to break the mark of 35 set by Team LeBron in 2019. Milwaukee Bucks guard Damian Lillard won the NBA All-Star Game Kobe Bryant MVP Award. That's all for the B-List this week. Check in next Monday to hear about what happens this week in pop culture. For WNUR News, I am Ella Barnes. Now for a brief look at the forecast. We may be in the midst of the so-called false spring before another bout of winter, but that's no reason not to enjoy the warmish weather. You can expect the same mild, mid-40s temperatures throughout the week. Taking a look at, into headlines in Evanston, Chicagoland, and across the nation and globe, on Friday, demolition began at the Welsh Ryan Field. Northwestern has launched a website to keep people up to date about the project. The site includes construction updates and an option to subscribe to announcements. Looking to national news, 37 million Californians, nearly the entire state population, are under flood warnings. Another atmospheric river has formed on the west coast, and 5 to 10 inches of rain are expected throughout the midweek. That's all for WNUR News at 6 p.m. For more news updates and reports, follow us on X at WNUR News and Instagram at WNUR News 89.3. You can listen to these and other WNUR News stories on our website, WNURnews.org. That's WNURnews.org. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Our producer today is Rachel Spears, and our reporters are Allison Rauch, Jesse Chen, Yumi Talud, Mika Ellison, and Ella Barnes. I'm Georgia Kerrigan. Catch our next newscast Wednesday, February 21st at 6 p.m. Now, back to scheduled programming.